Carol here with Dr. Lauren Sullivan, who's a board-certified emergency critical care specialist and an assistant professor in emergency critical care at Colorado State University. Dr. Sullivan, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks very much for having me. We're excited to pick your brain on parvovirus because I understand you are the guru in that area and you're doing a lot of cool studies, which I think are really clinically relevant for our practitioners out there. So I wanted to see if you'd be willing to just discuss parvovirus, some of the clinical signs that we see. I think most people feel pretty comfortable with it, how we diagnose it, how we treat it. And then if you don't mind discussing some of your study results, if you've done at CSU, that'd be fantastic. Sure, I'd be happy to do that. Canine parvovirus, or CPV as we often call it for short, is a highly contagious, non-enveloped, single-stranded DNA virus that tends to cause fairly acute and severe gastrointestinal illness in young, unvaccinated dogs. The CPV virus primarily targets the very highly proliferative germinal epithelium of the intestinal cells in young dogs and leads to destruction of these intestinal crypt cells. And what we see secondarily to that is, of course, villus atrophy and then sloughing of this protective mucosal layer that lines the GI tract, and then secondary hemorrhagic enteritis. The virus also targets cells of the immune system by destroying certain hematopoietic progenitor cells, mostly within the bone marrow, but also within the thymus and then the lymph nodes and the spleen. And so given all of these things combined, what we tend to see in dogs infected with CTV is severe dehydration and hypovolemia, neutropenia, bacterial transportation, septicemia, and then sometimes even death. And this is not a new disease as far as uh, veterinarians' awareness of CTV. It was actually identified first somewhere in the 1970s. At that time, two types of CTV were identified, type 1 and type 2. The type of CPV that we're most concerned about these days is type 2, which has undergone some pretty significant genetic alterations over the past three or four decades. And so now we have several antigenically different type 2 strains that we see in our clinical populations of CPV dogs. And this includes types 2A, uh, 2B, and then 2C. And there was a recent epidemiologic study within the United States that did show that CPV2B and 2C tend to predominate with naturally occurring disease. And that research suggests that whether or not it's type 2B or type 2C really doesn't matter as far as the clinical course of disease or how these puppies tend to do. But that's the two types that we tend to be dealing with on a clinical basis. We can vaccinate for CPV. We use a modified live virus, and that's highly effective against most field strains of CPV, and it is recommended as a core vaccine by the American Animal Hospital Association. Of course, this does require some degree of client education and compliance with the AHA immunization schedules, but this is, of course, the most effective means for controlling and preventing CPV infection. Unfortunately, despite the widespread availability of the vaccine, CPV is still considered a, a major cause of disease amongst young dogs. And there are various factors that may contribute to why certain dogs develop CPV. Um, there are some geographic, some demographic, and some socioeconomic factors, and there may be some genetic factors as well, and all of that is still being elucidated to a certain extent. As far as the severity of clinical signs that we tend to see with CPV, they can range from very mild in older dogs that maybe have been partially vaccinated 
very severe clinical signs in young puppies that have never seen a CPD vaccine before. And so because of that, mortality rates that have been listed for CPD have a very wide range. So in the past 30 years, these rates have gone anywhere from about 9% for aggressively treated populations all the way up to a mortality of somewhere in the 90s for untreated dogs. And so because of this, I think this wide range of numbers that we see, it really highlights the value of, of timely medical intervention. And we'll talk a little bit more about what that medical intervention is in an ideal world, and then some modifications we can make when cost comes into play or there are other constraints that don't allow us to provide the gold standard of care. In most puppies, CPV infection occurs, again, in unvaccinated dogs somewhere between six weeks and six months of age. Infection appears to be associated with seasonality, with warmer months demonstrating a higher incidence of disease. Various breeds have been associated with CPD, including the black and tan breeds like the Dobies and the Rottweilers. And like I mentioned before, breed and genetic background may interplay with the innate immune system, including the systemic inflammatory response to infection. And because of this, some of these black and tan breeds might be at higher risk of CPD infection for those reasons. There was one study performed at the Journal of Veterinary Emergency and Critical Care that did find that TNF-alpha production by peripheral blood monocytes was greatest in dogs with a breed-related risk for CPV. And so variations in cytokine production may help explain why certain breeds are more commonly or more severely affected with CPV. Once a dog is exposed to CPV, and this is mostly through either direct or indirect or nasal contact. Um, typically, there's an incubation period of somewhere around 7 to 14 days. And during this period, the virus replication becomes somewhat rampant and widespread throughout the body. There's lymphoid tissue in the oropharynx and in the thymus and in the regional lymph nodes. And all of this lymphoid tissue provides ample amounts of really rapidly dividing cells that help facilitate virus replication. And so what we see is a really marked plasma thyremia within one to five days of infection. This subsequently allows the CPV virus to move into the cells that line the GI tract. And like I mentioned before, this germinal epithelium of the small intestinal crypt cells is particularly sensitive to CPV invasion. And these cells become necrotic and they collapse and their villus tips become severely blunted. Ultimately, this leads to translocation of gram-negative and anaerobic bacteria from the intestinal lumen into the bloodstream. And this secondary bacteremia sets the clinical stage for secondary processes like sepsis and coagulation disorders, all of which can become life-threatening complications during the course of disease. What we tend to see then is that CPD is shed in the feces of the infected dog starting about three to four days after they've been exposed to the virus, and shedding can continue for up to 10 days after exposure. Although there is some work showing that fecal shedding may continue for as long as three to four weeks after the initial infection. And so obviously, being a very highly infective virus, limiting exposure of other dogs to the disease once it's shed in the feces is really important to prevent further transmission. There are other tissues that can be affected other than the gastrointestinal tract. So we've talked a lot about GI involvement, but other organ systems that can be affected include myocarditis. So myocardial involvement is something that's been observed particularly with neonatal infection. 
And then we can also see pathology within the respiratory system, within the liver, and within the kidneys. But again, pathology associated with these organs is fairly minimal compared to that that's observed within the gastrointestinal. And then ultimately, recuperation from the disease is going to be dependent largely upon the provision of appropriate supportive care until the body can produce antibodies against CPV, and there's recovery of the lymphoid cells and the intestinal crypt cells. Other things that may confound whether or not a puppy can recover from CPV include things like stress, parasitism, or other concurrent disease. But once an animal starts to make antibodies against CPV, then the duration of CPV immunity is actually very long. Of course, that immunity will only be specific to the individual dog that was infected or is applicable to her puppies. So in a bitch that's been exposed to CPV or has been appropriately vaccinated, then she, of course, will pass those antibodies along to the puppies. And the amount of antibodies that are received by the puppies is roughly proportional to that dam's titer and will, of course, decline over time as maternal immunity starts to wane, which is why it's really important that we start to vaccinate puppies for CPV starting around six to eight weeks of age and then follow up with immunizations every three to four weeks. Lack of proper vaccination is probably the number one reason why we see, uh, not probably, it is the number one reason why we see puppies contract CPV and become very ill. So I think a lot of us who work with CPV can't emphasize enough that preventative care really is the best treatment for CPV is just to prevent them from getting it in the first place. Because once they have it, it is a virus, and so we can't give anything necessarily to neutralize the virus. That's really efficacious, but instead we just have to support the puppy until its own immune system can produce antibodies and fight off the virus, which can take five to seven days, if not maybe longer, in severely affected cases. And so when it comes to providing that supportive care, there are a number of cornerstones that we have to consider. Cardiovascular stabilization is probably the most important cornerstone when these puppies come in on an emergency basis. Other things that we need to address relatively quickly in addition to cardiovascular stabilization include things like life-threatening electrolyte and glucose derangement, controlling their vomiting, providing visceral analgesia, making sure that we initiate antimicrobial protection to prevent bacterial translocation. Those are all things that we think about kind of in the immediate emergency stabilization phase. And we try to perform these interventions as quickly as possible. And this is particularly important with CPV because a lot of these puppies present to us in a fairly advanced condition. And what we know about early bull-directed therapy in critically ill patients is that the faster we get to them, the faster we resuscitate them and normalize their cardiovascular parameters, the better they do. And this is particularly true in septic patients. And if you think about CPV, this is a, a septic infection a lot of times. And so um, getting to them promptly and, and being aggressive in stabilization is really important. A lot of times, at least initial fluid therapy in the resuscitation phase, we try to focus on using IV fluid therapy and fluid resuscitation with isotonic crystalloids. And so that may be plasmolite A or normosol R or 0.9 saline, whatever your isotonic crystalloid fluid of choice is. 
And a lot of times we're going to provide these as a rapid IV bolus and we'll try to normalize their cardiovascular parameters quickly using isotonic fluid boluses. And then if needed, we can add on other fluid therapies to assist us in the resuscitation phase. So that may be something like hypertonic saline or hydroxyethyl starches. And it may be a combination of all of the above in order to optimize the puppy's perfusion parameters. And once that's been done, then we can shift more into the maintenance portion of the fluid plan, which I can talk about in a little bit. Additionally, when we're providing resuscitation fluids, we want to make sure that we're checking baseline electrolytes. A lot of times these puppies have multiple electrolyte derangements, of which the most important tend to be hypoglycemia and hypokalemia. And deficiencies in both of these electrolytes can be pretty severe and need fairly aggressive supplementation. So that's a good thing to be aware of early on in hospital presentation to begin correcting these things as quickly as possible. We also like to get anti-emetics on board pretty quickly. And so by helping control nausea and vomiting, this will not only improve patient comfort, but it will also limit ongoing losses in the form of vomiting. And our hope is that that will also contribute to improved cardiovascular stabilization. There are a number of antiemetics that are, are out there on the market. There is an older study looking at antiemetic use in CPD dogs that came out around 2005. And at that time, metoclopramide and the phenothiazines were the most commonly used antiemetics in CPV. But since that study, newer antiemetics like meropitant, florondansetron, or gelacitron have come out. And these now have kind of stepped up as being first-line agents to help control emesis in these cases. Meropitin is uh, probably the newest antiemetic that we're using in CPV cases. It works at the level of the chemoreceptor trigger zone and the emetic center, and it works by being a neurokinin antagonist or antagonizing substance P at the neurokinin receptor. It's probably our drug of choice at CSU when we're treating CPV. We give it at a dose of one mg per kg either IV or sub-Q every 24 hours. Meropitin is not labeled for IV use. It's only labeled for subcutaneous use. But there are some pharmacokinetic studies out there showing that it can be safely administered via an IV route, as long as it's not given too quickly. Otherwise, it can cause hypotension. And we also try to dilute it about 1 to 2, which is 0.9% saline, because it can cause some perivascular or intravascular irritation as well. So meropitin has largely become our antiemetic of choice um, at CSU. We do have some data to suggest that it's equally as efficacious to ondansetron when controlling vomiting in these CPV cases. That data was published as an abstract at ACBIM in 2012, and it's currently undergoing review. But both Meropitin and ondansetron seem to be comparable when controlling emesis in dogs with CPV. One reason why people are a little hesitant to use meropitin in dogs with CPV is because of their age. So meropitin has been labeled to be used in puppies greater than eight weeks of age. And the reason for this is that in early clinical trials, the manufacturer did 
recognized that there was some bone marrow hypoplasia that was observed in younger dogs, but only when moravitant was used at higher than recommended doses. So you will see that as an argument maybe to not use moravitant in these cases, although I will say at Colorado State University, we tend to use moravitant in puppies younger than eight weeks of age, and we tend to give it IV, and we haven't seen any adverse effects as a result of that. So moropitin is one good choice for an antiemetic on Dancitron, also acting similarly at the chemoreceptor trigger zone as a serotonin antagonist is another good choice. At our institution, we tend to use 0.3 to 0.5 mg per kg, either sub-Q or IV, PID. And then there are some other antiemetics that could be added on as well. So metoclopramide or chlorpromazine are also good options for controlling emesis. And in reality, we may need to use a combination of these drugs in order to adequately control the puppy's vomiting and nausea while they're in the hospital with us. Analgesia is also really important as well. So dogs that have CPV tend to demonstrate moderate to fairly severe visceral pain at times. And we know that untreated pain only further complicates disease, and it can even increase the risk of severe infection and death. So we try to be proactive about monitoring for visceral pain and treating it as needed in these CPV dogs. There are several classes of analgesics to consider when managing visceral pain in CPV dogs, given their relatively debilitated nature. A lot of times we tend to use the reversible opioids, so something like fentanyl or hydromorphone, and typically we do that as a titratable continuous rate infusion. But I would say in cases of mild visceral pain, um, even the partial opioid agonists like buprenorphine, maybe even the agonist antagonists like butorphanol could also be considered. In addition to opioids, there are some other classes of analgesics that can be sequentially added to that baseline opioid in order to improve abdominal comfort. So things that we like to use include lidocaine, although we typically think of that as a local anesthetic. It actually can be given as a low-dose CRI to help enhance visceral analgesia. It may also assist with prokinesis within the gastrointestinal tract, although I will say the magnitude and the clinical significance of this prokinesis has certainly been debated in veterinary medicine. The other drug to consider adding on to your opioid, your baseline opioid, would be ketamine, which is an NMDA antagonist. And this can really help reverse wind-up pain, and it can help dampen that exaggerated central response that these puppies tend to get to painful stimuli. So analgesia is another important cornerstone. And then the final one is going to be antimicrobials. So making sure that we're using an intravenous, broad-spectrum, bactericidal antibiotic, and that's really important in these cases because there's this highly compromised blood gut barrier, and this compromised barrier is permitting the passage of bacteria from the intestinal lumen into the bloodstream. And alongside this bacterial location, these puppies often have a concurrent neutropenia due to destruction of their lymphoid cells, putting them at significant risk for septicemia and death. So some of the drugs that we like to use to help appropriately cover these puppies include things like the extended spectrum penicillins, the second generation cephalosporins, or even a penicillin that's paired with a fluoroquinolone, although fluoroquinolones certainly have their adverse effects in young growing puppies. 
So in our hospital, we tend to use an extended spectrum penicillin. So we use ampicillin sulbactam, and the dose we use is 50 mg per kg IV every eight hours. Alternatively, cefoxetin can be administered at 22 mg per kg IV every six to eight hours instead. We try to stay away from immunoglycosides, particularly because, you know, there's concern about damage to the renal tubular cells. This damage that we see with immunoglycosides tends to be potentiated. This nephrotoxicity tends to be potentiated in certain circumstances, like if the puppy has a fever or is hypovolemic or is dehydrated. And that tends to be the case with almost all of these parvo puppies. So for those reasons, we try to stay away from immunoglycosides when we can. There are some other aspects of therapy that I think are kind of uh, plus or minus adjunctive therapies that some people think about. Unfortunately, most immunotherapies have not been found to significantly influence the clinical recovery or survival in CPD dogs. So no definitive benefit has been identified following the administration of antiviral drugs, um, things like neuraminidase inhibitors, or by giving recombinant granulocyte colony stimulating factor. So these drugs really in the literature haven't panned out to cause a significant difference in clinical recovery or survival. Additionally, there actually was a recent study published out of our institution that did not identify any advantage by giving passive immunotherapy or hyperimmune serum to dogs that have CPV. So that's something that has somewhat fallen by the wayside of our practice as well. Other studies have evaluated more commercial immunoglobulin products, and that suggests that there may be some mild clinical improvement if we give IgG exogenously, but this isn't something that's routinely done in clinical practice. And finally, an an additional treatment that has been shown to reduce CPD-related illness is to actually give recombinant feline interferon, and the dose for that is about 2.5 times 10 to the 8th units per kg, and that's given IV every 24 hours for a duration of three days. Although, again, that's not something that we routinely give at our institution, but could certainly be considered in really severe cases of CPD. So overall, as I mentioned before, the, the prognosis is somewhat variable. It depends on a lot of factors, so things like age and breed and what that puppy's vaccine history is, if they have concurrent illness, the timing of the medical intervention and the level of medical care that is provided can all play a role in the overall prognosis. We tend to see with good, early, aggressive interventional care, we tend to see a survival rate somewhere between 80 to 90% in dogs with CPV at our institution, which is much higher than what had been previously reported. I think that there is improved awareness in the public about CPV and needing timely and aggressive intervention, and veterinarians are doing a great job at managing this disease on an inpatient basis. I think what we're finding is, though, that a lot of clients cannot afford the gold standard of care, which would be hospitalization and IV fluids and IV antibiotics and antiemetics and lots of time. Depending on where you practice, the cost of um, treating CPD can probably be anywhere from about $1,500 up to maybe even five or $6,000, depending on how sick that puppy is. And for some owners, that can become a real financial burden to try to come up with those funds. And as veterinarians, I think it's important to remember our role in the human-animal bond 
And our job as veterinarians is to help promote that human-animal bond, even in circumstances where owners can't afford several thousand dollars worth of care. And I think this is really important in the public's eye as well, because it allows the public to see that we care even if they can't afford the gold standard treatment. And so one thing we've become interested in at CSU is the development of an outpatient protocol that can be used in cases where gold standard is not uh, feasible for these clients and the only other option is euthanasia. And so rather than going down that route, we have provided outpatient care as an alternative and we've actually studied this in order to compare some of the major outcome variables of outpatient care to that of inpatient care. And so we advertise to the greater RDVM area, uh, and this was in the summer of 2012, and we advertised that we were going to be doing a PARVO study, and if veterinarians had clients whose puppies were diagnosed with CPD and they could not afford treatment and euthanasia was likely the only other option, that they could be referred to CSU for free care for parvovirus and to be enrolled in the study. These puppies had to be less than a year of age and they had to have classic clinical signs. They had to be ELISA positive on their SNAP test um, and they could not have had any vaccines historically. And if they met those criteria, they were shipped up to us at which point we enrolled them in the study following informed client consent. We ended up enrolling a total of 40 dogs, 20 of which were randomized to receive inpatient care and 20 of which were randomized to receive outpatient care. And all puppies, regardless of what protocol they were randomized to, hospital presentation did receive an IV catheter, an IV fluid resuscitation using some of the resuscitation techniques we talked about earlier in this lecture. At that same time, all puppies also had a baseline venous blood gas and electrolyte panel performed, and that allowed us to correct hypoglycemia and to begin correcting hypokalemia during stabilization. And once the puppies were stabilized, they were then assigned to their appropriate group, so either inpatient or outpatient care. And regardless of treatment group, all puppies stayed at the veterinary teaching hospitals for the duration of their treatment. And the reason for this was several fold. We wanted to be able to keep a close eye on them and make sure that the outpatient puppies were indeed receiving their prescribed treatments. We wanted to collect daily blood work on them to kind of trend some of their white cell parameters and look at what their electrolytes did over time. And we wanted to be able to intervene if we felt like a puppy met certain criteria to fail the outpatient protocol, we wanted to have the option to transition them into the inpatient protocol as well. So all 40 puppies were housed at the VTH. We completed this study in about a six-week period, and we were able to track both the inpatient and the outpatient groups over time. The inpatient group had a treatment protocol that is really similar to what we've already discussed as far as gold standard care goes. The outpatient puppies, on the other hand, once they were cardiovascularly stabilized using IV fluids, their IV catheter was pulled and they were then started on an outpatient protocol. And that outpatient protocol consisted of subcutaneous fluids. So we gave 30 mils per kg of plain plasma light, QID. And then for an anti-emetic, we gave meropitin at one mg per kg subcutaneously every 24 hours. And then we gave a single dose of sifovacin or convenia, 8 mg per kg subcutaneously just once. 
And then in these outpatient puppies, we monitored their electrolytes every day, and we would provide dextrose and potassium supplementation to them as needed. So if they became hypoglycemic, then we used Kero syrup. And if they became hypokalemic, then we gave them oral Tummel K. So we tried to mimic this protocol according to what owners would be able to provide at home, which would really be sub-Q fluids, a single dose of Convenia, and then a once-daily dose of Meropitant, and then just oral dextrose, oral potassium, and then oral syringe feeding with Hills AD was kind of the, the nuts and bolts of the outpatient study. We were also very intent on keeping these puppies warm. So you can't absorb sub-Q fluids if you're cold and vasoconstricted. So with these puppies, we maintained their rectal temperature above 98 degrees at all times. And we did this with aggressive external warming, mostly in the form of heat lamps. So keeping them warm and dry, I think, also was integral to the success of this protocol. And we trended these puppies over time to look to, to see how they did. We provided rescue antiemetics and rescue analgesics for both groups as needed based on nausea scoring and on pain scoring. And then ultimately, you know, all puppies were discharged to their owners once their vomiting had ceased and they were eating again and their CDC parameters had normalized. And so what we ended up finding is that the outpatient group actually did fairly well. Overall protocol success for the outpatients was 80%. So of the 20 outpatient dogs, we had 16 dogs complete the protocol. For the four dogs that did not complete the protocol, three of them died. And the fourth one was successfully transitioned to an inpatient protocol and survived. So about 80% success for the outpatient group versus 90% success for the inpatient group. So we had 18 out of 20 inpatient dogs survive. And that was not statistically significant, but this is a really small sample size. We're only looking at 40 dogs here. And I think we also have to keep in mind that there was some indication that our inpatient dogs may have been slightly sicker than our outpatient dogs, which would have favorably biased the outpatient dogs to be better. What makes us think that our inpatient dogs were maybe a little bit more sick than our outpatient dogs is they were more likely to develop hypoglycemia during hospitalization. And we also saw some changes in the white blood cell count of inpatient versus outpatient dogs that previously has been shown to have prognostic significance in CPV that would also maybe suggest in this study that outpatient dogs were bound to do well anyways, specifically that their lymphocyte count was higher and it raised more rapidly throughout the treatment for CPV. So keeping those things in mind, I think success rate of 80% is great. Um, it's much better than we were expecting. But I think that it's also important to remember that maybe these dogs were a little bit less sick and it positively biased them to have a more favorable outcome with the outpatient protocol. I also like to make note that of the patients that did not do well with the outpatient protocol, most of those dogs were less than four kilograms and all of them were less than four months of age. And so I would really question if a practitioner had a puppy that was particularly young or very small whether or not an outpatient protocol would be appropriate for that puppy or not. We did see a fair amount of both 
hypoglycemia and hypokalemia within the outpatient group. So about 50% of outpatient dogs required dextrose supplementation and about 60% of outpatient dogs required potassium supplementation. The oral syrup and the oral K did a great job in normalizing those electrolyte abnormalities. One could even argue that maybe most outpatient dogs should just automatically go home on oral potassium and dextrose supplementation, knowing that a vast majority of them will go on to develop these electrolyte abnormalities during treatment. And I think the final kind of highlight of our protocol is that this is a pretty intensive protocol. So, you know, sub-Q fluids four times a day and giving sub-Q injections and keeping them warm and dry is not necessarily for all owners. And so I think one of the critiques of this study is the intensiveness with which outpatient care was provided and that that may not actually be feasible for all owners. For some owners, it definitely is. It's just Finances is the issue, and if we can take care of the finances part, they're very dedicated to giving good home care to these puppies. But it's going to vary owner to owner as far as what they're capable of providing for supportive care at home, and it requires a very detailed conversation with their veterinarian as far as what that care looks like. The other thing we would advocate is that owners are once a day kind of driving by with the puppy in the car. The doctor and the technician are going out to the car and assessing the puppy, making sure that the puppy is still well enough to be undergoing outpatient care and that the puppy doesn't need to, let's say, be hospitalized or maybe even be euthanized. We call that CARVO. And we've had pretty good success with CARVO at CSU, clients making a commitment to come by once a day. They drive up, we go out to them, we assess the puppy. We may even get some blood to do a blood gas and make sure their electrolytes are going okay. Sometimes we help the owner gives sub-Q fluids while they're there, and then they drive off and we see them the next day. So um, that may be another option for keeping a tighter rein on these cases and making sure that they don't need more aggressive intervention. So that's kind of the nuts and bolts of the outpatient protocol treatment, which this study is currently undergoing peer review. And so we hope to have it published probably within the next 12 to 18 months. Thank you so much, Dr. Sullivan. That's an amazing study because I think it's really helpful. And you're right. It's such a big socioeconomic problem where people don't vaccinate and then we end up seeing it. I am curious in reiterating. So some of the treatment studies that have been shown to help with parvovirus cases is the use of interferon, which I thought was interesting. I do find a lot of these patients do great with, you know, really meropotent IV fluids mm -hmm. and, and supportive care. What do you think? I know a lot of people, especially on VIN, jump to giving these guys plasma. And I just wanted to see if you could talk about that a little bit more. I'm, I'm always nervous and hesitant to do it just because we have to give them such a large volume to increase their albumin, their neonates or puppies, so they have a lower COP or colloid osmotic pressure and total protein anyway. So I generally prefer to reach for some type of colloid because I'm always nervous about triggering these guys or priming their body for a future transfusion reaction. So what are your thoughts on doing that? Is it warranted either as a colloid or for that immunostimulatory effect or, or what? That's a great question. Interestingly, we have a puppy in our ICU right now who is owned by an MD who's very involved in this puppy's care and also very up on the human literature and, and transfusion literature. And so there's been a lot of active discussion in our ICU about this very topic to speak. I think we're, with any treatment, we weigh the pros and cons and whether or not 
the pros of giving a particular treatment outweigh the risks. And I would say in a vast, vast majority of parvo puppies, pros of giving plasma don't truly outweigh the risks. And by risks, um, you've mentioned some of them. So we're exposing this animal to an exogenous blood product that could prime them for transfusion reactions in the future. We also have a highly inflammatory animal whose coagulation system has been affected by that inflammatory state and giving, again, something like plasma may only further drive that systemic inflammation and hypercoagulable state. There are immediate transfusion reactions that we may see when giving a blood product. There is the cost associated with giving plasma and the volume of plasma that we have to give to raise serum albumin is pretty significant. So because of all of those things, as well as our success in managing parvo puppies largely with crystalloids and colloids like hydroxyethyl starches alone, plasma is not something that we routinely jump to when treating most routine CPD cases. I think the times when we tend to use it is when we're having a difficult time achieving cardiovascular stability with our more traditional fluids. So they've gotten a lot of crystalloids, maybe they've gotten some head of starch boluses or they're on a head of starch CRI. But what we're finding is that we just can't keep up with their losses. So that they're continuing to have a lot of vomiting and diarrhea. We're seeing their albumin drop significantly. The puppy this week had developed chemosis and she was developing some interstitial edema. And so at that point, we did decide to give this puppy plasma because we knew that otherwise we probably weren't going to get her cardiovascularly stable. We could maybe help with her colloid osmotic pressure and help with some of this interstitial edema that we were seeing. And for this particular puppy, that is what turned her around. But I would say that is definitely the exception rather than the rule. And if we can wait to give blood products until they're truly indicated, then we're really minimizing the risk, maximizing the benefit of giving these products. And so I would say that's our approach. Perfect. Thank you so much. One question I wanted to ask, and you know, this is my total bias when it comes to any tubes or NG tubes. I love uh, nutritional support, especially in you know your icteric cat or your cat with heart disease that uh, you want to hydrate with a safer oral route. Have there been studies looking at a shorter hospitalization with the use of enteral feeding, like NE tubes or NG tubes in these puppies? I know there have been yeah. with parvo cases. So just wondering, how aggressive should we be with nutritional support in these guys? We think that nutritional support is incredibly important when it comes to providing appropriate care for CPD dogs. And that can be challenging because a lot of times they're vomiting. And so rightfully so, people get a little bit nervous about syringe feeding them or providing enteral nutrition because of the risks of aspiration pneumonia. But like you mentioned, there is data out there suggesting that early enteral nutrition or early enteral feeding in parvo puppies actually can help limit duration of hospitalization and improve outcome in CPV dogs. And so for these reasons, we try really hard to get nutrition into them pretty quickly once they're hospitalized. We may give them 6 to 12 hours to get them rehydrated to get their antiemetics working. But then very soon after that, we will begin either syringe feeding or we'll place a nasogastric tube and we'll start feeding through the nasogastric tube, which is exactly what the puppy this week had. The nice thing about the nasogastric tube is we can also 
suction, the residual content out of their stomach. And so we may do that every six to eight hours. A lot of times their stomachs become really fluid filled and dilated and that just augments the cycle of nausea and vomiting and regurgitation that we tend to see. So by placing an NG tube, we can actually suction their stomach, keep them empty, help reduce nausea. We can better quantify how much fluid they're third spacing into their GI tract and we can replace those ongoing losses and we can provide them nutrition without force feeding. So I think it should definitely be on the radar within six to 12 hours of hospital admission. The team should be asking, what are we doing about nutrition for this puppy? Perfect. Thank you. And I love the term that you used, carbo. <laughs> so for these drive-by <laughs> outpatient parvo cases, do you send them home with NE tubes or NG tubes, or are you having owners syringe feed at home? That's a great question. So we, in our study, as well as what we do now clinically, is we have our clients syringe feed, and we aim for about a mil per keg of AED every four to six hours is kind of what what we aim for. I haven't tried an NG tube with an owner. You know, there's some risk there if it becomes dislodged or if the puppy vomits it up or it gets stuck in the pharynx. And so for the most part, I, I haven't gone to NG tubes when doing the outpatient care, but definitely advocating for syringe feeding so those NRSites can see some nutrition to start to replenish themselves. Excellent. Thank you so much. I think it's a great study because most of all, we've all treated cases that can't afford the $3,000 hospitalization for a couple of days of IV fluid therapy. And just knowing that we can jumpstart them with even, you know, a day of aggressive volume resuscitation and then trying outpatient therapy. It's a great way of, of giving pet owners options when they have financial constraints. So fantastic study. Any uh, last thoughts you want to leave with us on parvovirus? I don't know. I don't think so. Just I'm always happy to entertain any questions or stimulate discussion around parvo. So I would just encourage those that have an interest can always reach me at my email, which is just lauren.sullivan at colostate.edu. Thank you so much, Dr. Sullivan. That's a fantastic, informative podcast. I think it just reiterates that we shouldn't give up on these guys and that we can be pretty aggressive practicing quality medicine and working with owners' financial constraints. So thank you so much. 